are at Exponential Growth, and today we're going to be talking about personal and business growth. We have Blake Matias. Thank you, Blake, for joining us. Thanks, Gabe. I appreciate the opportunity. So another serial entrepreneur, and there's a couple of businesses involved in this in, you know, this episode, we're going to be covering a couple topics, but Blake, let's go ahead and, and give the audience some background about your business. I know you were involved in a family business at the beginning, so. Yeah, so I kind of grew up in family business. Actually, on the first day of, of class in my entrepreneurship class, I show a picture of me as a baby, actually with a Matthias electric hat on that kind of demonstrates that I literally grew up in a family business and started working in rural Illinois when I was about 13, full-time in the summer. And so that was always our business was Matthias Electric and kind of grew up and got exposed to entrepreneurship at a pretty young age. Electric business grew to electric and plumbing, uh, grew to an advertising company, grew to a hardware store. And so my dad was really a serial entrepreneur, if you will. And so I went to college and was trying to figure out what am I going to do with my life with like a lot of college students? Do I want to take over the family business? Do I want to try to do something on my own? And, you know, I eventually saw the path of becoming a, a college professor, professor and teaching entrepreneurship. And then shortly after I made that decision, my dad passed away unexpectedly. So kind of put that on hold for a while, moved back to Illinois, took over our family businesses. At that point, it had gone from electrical and plumbing and hardware and an advertising business to assisted living as well. And so we were in the process, or he was in the process of, of building several assisted living facilities, and we already had a few. So I moved back, and it was kind of, uh, I was thrown into the fire, if you will, because all of a sudden overnight, I became in charge of, of all of those businesses. And so, you know, I moved back to Illinois, worked in those businesses, took over ownership of them, developed a few more assisted living facilities over the next few years, finished my PhD, which was at the University of, of Tennessee. And then once I was done, I needed to make a decision again. Am I going to go back and live in Illinois for the rest of my life and run these businesses, run the day-to-day -day activities, or do I want to continue this, this career path of, of being a professor? And to some extent, I chose both, but right now I'm more heavily focused on being a professor. I'm down here at uh, LSU in the nice warm sun. It's amazing. And I'm glad as part of uh, a little bit of that journey went by joining your class. <laughs> <laughs> and it's in You get an A for this? <laughs> <laughs> Overly. But it's interesting that you got, you know, Electric Business and Craig, our co-host here at the show, he used to run an electrical business. Then I'm in the advertisement world, online marketing. But then Josh, which is another friend that is in the class, he works at a hardwood store. So I'm like, man, that's a good mix right there. <laughs> I need to be coming to you guys for there advice. Go, right, right. <laughs> so the PhD, what was the concentration in the PhD? So the PhD, so a lot of what's happening at a lot of universities is they're starting to add PhD programs and undergrad programs in entrepreneurship. Mine was in management, but my focus was really on entrepreneurship. For my dissertation, I interviewed, I think over the course of my studies, I think now I've interviewed a few hundred um, entrepreneurs. And so it was, the focus was on entrepreneurship and particularly my dissertation. I want to go to, I don't want to put you all to sleep about my dissertation, but to give you the high level overview is that I kind of study the different hats that entrepreneurs wear. So when you first start a business, you've got to wear many hats. Uh, you got to do everything. You got to be, if you're a restaurant owner, you've got to be the chef. You've got to be ordering the food. You got to be the customer service, waiting on people. You've got to be doing the accounting and you got to do a little bit of everything. But the goal, if you want to grow your business, you can't do everything forever. You can't wear all those hats forever. And so my dissertation is about how do you give up those hats 
and how does doing that allow your business to grow? That was kind of the focus of, of my dissertation. And that's very linked to the whole management aspect of you know, business. Yeah, it's very much linked in, in this idea that when you start a business, you kind of are, are an entrepreneur. And over time, it kind of morphs from being an entrepreneur. You're still an entrepreneur, but more of your roles become like a manager. You're, you're managing people, and that's a good chunk of, of the time that you spend in your businesses. How do I manage all these different parts and all these people? So, so the role definitely changes. We're going to jump into being an owner, and I think that's one of the things that I ask you when I get got to meet you about being an owner versus an operator, and I know we're, we're going to have a chance to talk about that, but I guess I have to come to you for advice in interviews and interviewing entrepreneurs, right? Yeah. <laughs> I don't know about that. Well, you, you say 100 were there like all around the state? Yeah, so I've interviewed people all over. I've done done face-to-face. -face. I always try to do face-to-face -face interviews when I can because those are usually the most rich Sometimes I'll do them over the phone and over Skype. Um, so it's a mix of both. Some of them are from my entrepreneurial network in Illinois, so a lot of people from Illinois. Then when I was doing my PhD uh, in Tennessee, uh, it was a lot of people from Tennessee and Western North Carolina, Knoxville area, Chattanooga area, had a lot of startup activity. And then down here, I've interviewed. Getting to know people, I've been down here in Baton Rouge for about a year and a half, so getting to know entrepreneurs here as well because... Part of it is research, and then part of it is I also like to have guest speakers come in to my entrepreneurship classes. I think I only know so much, and I tell my students that's very little, so I like to have other guests come in. And so when I meet entrepreneurs, if something strikes me, I think they can add something to the classroom. I'll often have them come as, as visitors to kind of share their experiences. When you approach people, you say, hey, doing a, you know, a study or a research, and I would love to interview, or was it more personal use? To me, it's a little bit of both. To me, I've been able to use a lot of the knowledge that I learned from those interviews to apply to my own businesses or to apply for teaching in the classroom. But it's also for research purposes. I want to say that it's entirely for my own educational advancement and self-knowledge, yeah. but it's also self-interest a little bit as well in getting these interviews, going through them, and being able to publish. As a professor, you're, you know, there's, there's a strong motivation to publish your research as well. And so... Uh, it's a little bit of both. Craig and I, when we started the podcast, Craig was already doing this. He's been doing it for years. He, he's been doing what you've been doing, but not for research, but for helping young entrepreneurs connect with exemplary mentors and connect with more experienced entrepreneurs out there. So when we met, he invited me to a couple of events. We went to a couple meetings with pretty successful entrepreneurs. And I was like, we have to record this. Like, we have to share this with the world. And that's how we got started. And, you know, just... For the people out there listening to this, it's podcasting is the new networking, period. Or, you know, and I say podcasting because I'm up, I'm, I'm, you know, I'm a high believer in, in the medium and I'm a consumer and it's growing and it's here to stay. But so far, like you said, you've been here for a year and a half. When I moved down here, I didn't know anybody. So, but now with the podcast, it's a great tool to not only ask and say, hey, can I pick your brain? But also to provide value, to, to allow people to tell their story, to connect with like we have all kind of entrepreneurs engineers we got this phd last week which i love her story nikki and they're all different but now we're sharing their stories it's not just about hey i want to learn i want to big your brain right so i just wanted to talk about that podcasting and now that you're doing the interviews and let's go ahead and jump into you know that serial entrepreneurship factor on you having all these different completely separate and different uh, business units to call it that way. How do you handle that? I'll talk a little bit about my management style, I guess, and 
one is very different running your own business versus running a business that perhaps your family started. A lot of people, a lot of students in my classes are, are taking over family businesses. And sometimes you don't always see eye with the previous family members, parents, or whomever else. And it's different because it feels, you know, sometimes, you know, this business is not just yours, it's your fam. you feel like it's your family's as well. One of the things I think is giving people autonomy in each and independence in each business unit. Uh, so with, for example, our assisted living facilities, each facility has a director. And I view each director of each facility to some extent as their own entrepreneur. They are in charge of that facility. They are running that facility. They have the ability to make decisions in that business. And they make decisions differently than another facility. Now, some people don't manage that way, but but to me, that's kind of my management style. I'm, I'm fairly hands-off and that want people to feel ownership of the facility. I don't want it to feel like my company. I want it to feel like their company as well, that they actually have their own facility that they're running. Uh, and it gives them a sense, sense I think, of, of ownership in the business. It allows them freedom to make their own choices. And so they don't have to come to me every time a decision needs to be made. They know my values. They know what I value in the company so they can make most of the decisions. And it, it allows you, allows me to, to manage many different companies. Because if everyone was coming to me from every different business unit to ask every question about every decision that needed to be made, it would be overwhelming. You just can't do it. So I think you have to give, in our case, directors or managers the ability to make those decisions. And you have to trust them and you have to get the right people in place first, which is important. All right. So that's the management. Let's back and talk about the business model, too. And I guess we can focus on the assistant living facilities. I would love to talk about all of them, but for maybe we do another episode and talk about a couple of the businesses. But this one, let's talk about the assisted living facilities. Well, so what's the business model there? Yeah, so assisted living has grown over the last 10 years. People are now becoming or have become very aware that, you know, we're an aging population. People who are baby boomers are retiring. They need a place to live. And so assisted living, you know, was not a not a real common term or not a real common thing 20 years ago. And they've really become more and more popular in the last 10 or 15 years. And we were lucky enough to kind of get in in the early stages. And we did it all wrong the first time. We went into an urban market. We built a facility that was 30-some rooms, um, a very competitive market. And we, we built a facility that wasn't, that wasn't big enough. What we realized with what we were charging in the market is that you know, if you build a facility with with 30 rooms, that's just going to cover your, that's just going to get you to break even. You have so much overhead in that type of business with the building itself, with the staff, with everything else that it's your, it's your last 10 to 20 rooms that are really going to generate a profit for your business. So we kind of failed, uh, if you will, but it was a learning experience. We didn't really make any money from our very first facility, but we realized we could do this differently. We could be successful with it. So the, the strategy that we kind of went into with our business model is, let's, let's not go into competitive markets. Uh, there's a need in more rural areas. So what we did is we specifically looked for communities, 5,000 to maybe 30,000 people, pretty small towns, where there was a need, a clear need for assisted living, but there was an assisted living facility already. 
So choose markets where the competition is essentially non-existent and build a facility that is going to entice people to you know, move out of their home if they're thinking about you know, leaving their home. And we'd also have to move into markets, not just that you know, where competition was low. The towns needed to be both big enough to support an assisted living, but also they had to have the means to pay for an assisted living. An assisted living facility, they're not cheap. Rural markets may be as low as $2,000 to as much as eight or $10,000 in, in more urban. So you have to kind of choose a market that is middle to middle upper income, um, where the median income is, is relatively high. So we, we would always look at the community. Is there an assisted living facility nearby? Are we going to build a nicer facility if there is one? Uh, make sure the town is big enough to support one, and then look at the, the average income and see, is this town essentially an affluent enough area to be able to support one of these facilities. So that was kind of the model that we took. And so if you kind of go and look at, at several of where we built, it kind of makes sense. All of our facilities are kind of in a similar type of town, similar type of... Yeah, that's pretty much covering the first three M's of the show. You talk about the management, how you manage, talk about the model and the market. I'd love to now talk about more on being an owner and not an operator and how you got, as an entrepreneur, if you decide I'm not going to run this business, I'm not going to operate it financially, what are some of the, you got some positive thing, but at the same time, you're not necessarily going to have some of those rewards of running a business, which is why most of entrepreneurs are like, oh no, I'm going to do this myself. I'm not going to hire anybody to do this. So you're saying, hey, I'm not going to run it, but you're taking less money at the end of the day. Yeah. So you're taking less money by hiring more people who are in charge. I would say the most common phrase I hear in interviewing entrepreneurs in my research is this, this business is my baby. Like, and they always use that metaphor. You know, it's my baby. I can't give this up. You know, you're, essentially giving your baby up for adoption. That's, that's really what, when you remove yourself from the business. And although I have emotional ties, I would say to my employees, like I'm not a very good when it comes to managing. And if I think someone would need to be fired, I'm terrible at making those decisions. I'm just off. But I'm not emotionally attached as much to the businesses themselves and what goes on within the businesses. You have to kind of have to detach emotion a little bit from saying, you know what, this isn't my baby alone. This is, this is everybody. Everybody has a stake in this, in this business. That's a trade-off. That's not for everybody. There, there are certainly lots of entrepreneurs who say, I don't, growth is not that important. You know, I'd rather be involved in this, make sure that the quality of the business, quality of the products remain high. I want to stay involved. But to me, that's a bit of a, of a trade-off. You know, staying more involved, the more involved you stay within a company, I think it, it limits your ability to grow the business. Yeah, and your position, it's more of like just staying out of the way pretty much, right? It's, yeah, it's staying out of the way. And it's also I made a choice that, that I'm going to become a professor. And that, you know, that takes a lot of time in and of itself. And, and I can't be a good professor and be a good entrepreneur at the same time. They both require a lot of time. Being an entrepreneur takes a lot of time. Being a professor takes a lot of time. And to try to be great at both you only have so much time with, with how you, you know, spend your life. And so, you know, I, I kind of decided I'd rather focus on trying to be a great professor. And to do that, I'm going to have to take more of, of an investor owner type role in the businesses as opposed to an entrepreneur uh, type role. Yeah. And I love that keyword right there, investor. I think back to Robert Kiyosaki, the entrepreneur, I mean, the uh, 
employee, self-employee, entrepreneur, and then investor. Ultimately, anybody that succeeds at any area in life, like if it's an artist or a singer, whoever succeeds, they most likely will need to become investor. They don't have to become entrepreneurs at all. They have to invest. So you right now, you're an investor and you own these companies, but you don't run it. And I do want to just highlight and emphasize how important that is because some people, and especially young people, young entrepreneurs, and in the show, we highlight a lot of the successful entrepreneurs is having that identity. Like at this age, I'm 26, you know, we're defining who am I going to be or at least, you know, my title, my career. And some people, they don't even know, like I'm... Now I know I want to be an investor. Mm-hmm. That's a clear path. I mean, what am I going to invest? I don't know. But um, I think it's good for, for people out there to know that being an entrepreneur doesn't mean that, okay, well, if you're an electrician and you do good electrical work, now you can be an entrepreneur because who are you? Well, I'm an electrician. No, you can own an electrical company and you might not even know how to you know, change a bulb. <laughs> Is that the case with you? Like you don't really need to have an expertise in those businesses to own yeah, to own them. That's certainly true. Now I think it it helps to have a knowledge of the area when you own a business. I still do think it even if you take on that investor role, investing in businesses in in which you at least have a baseline knowledge is important. But you're right, you don't need to know the ins and outs. And so, for instance, with the assisted living, each of the facilities, I say I don't know crap about nursing. I have no knowledge. I have no background. I have never took a a biology or nursing class in college. So I know that I need to have people in place who do know that and who do have those skill sets because I don't. uh, And I'm pretty upfront about that gap in knowledge. But it's okay because, you know, if you have people in place who are knowledgeable in that area, then uh, the business can, can be successful. It's wonderful. So yeah, we cover the first three M's, mentorship, and Greg, I guess you want to talk about teaching, entrepreneurship, and all of that good stuff. <laughs> Thanks, Thank Gabe. You, I appreciate the opportunity. One thing you talked about earlier in the beginning was giving up those hats. And I noticed that's a common theme among entrepreneurs. Typically, you're dealing with the high D profile, go-getter, kind of run through walls. That's kind of what it takes. But that seems to work counter to being able to let go. So what are some of the things you've seen? How, how do successful entrepreneurs let go and delegate? It's a, huge, it's a step. huge step. One is you have to, so a lot of people, myself included, everybody has biases where we think what's referred to as superiority bias. I think I'm better at doing something than you are, even if I'm not. And I think the first step, which is kind of a cliche, is is realizing you have a problem, realizing that maybe I'm not the best person in in doing this. I might, and I use this example, I have an accounting degree, and I say, you know what, I have an accounting degree, but shoot, that was 10 years ago when I got that degree. And there are people who are accountants who deal with this stuff every day and who deal and, and who work with accounting. And they're more knowledgeable and more experienced than I am. And so I, for a lot of entrepreneurs, it's this eventual realization that, you know what, I might not, I might be okay at this, but being okay is not good enough. I need to find someone who is great at, at doing this. So I think first is kind of this realization that, hey, 
maybe I'm not the best person for all of these roles in the company. Maybe there are people out there who are better than me. Uh, and then the second step is finding those people and getting those people, whether it's an outside firm that you're going to hire for web design or an accounting firm or some hiring employees to come into your business and become employees of your business. Um, that's kind of the second step. And that step can be tricky too, because you can bring, you know, employees who you think are going to be great and they're not great. And if you bring in an employee or two employees or three employees and nobody kind of is up to snuff with your expectations, entrepreneurs can kind of take back control of, of that. And so, so that's not a great answer, but I would say first it's, it's kind of realizing there are others out there who are maybe better at, at certain things and then finding those people, seeking them out, and then making them part of your organization in some way. Right. It's kind of a similar question, but one of my mentors talks a lot about being self-aware and how he, you know, he wishes that for me, but he admits he doesn't know how to do it. I don't know how, what triggers it, how you become self-aware. I hope you get it one day, but don't ask me how to get it. Get your, get your student evaluations and read them at the end of the semester. This professor was blank, blank, blank. I was, I was doing that. Really? <laughs> They'll make you self-aware. But no, I think, I mean, I'm joking there, but I think it's, it is about finding people who will really tell you the truth. It's like, and, you know, this is maybe getting, if I try on an outfit and my fiance will tell me if it looks terrible on me, you know, she'll, she will speak her mind and she will tell me. And I think as a business owner, you need that person or those people who will tell you this product sucks or this, this thing you're doing is not good. Um, because you don't want those people who are just, oh yeah, this is, this is good. You want people who will really speak their mind when it comes to either your management or the output, the products of your, of your business, who will give you real feedback rather than the feedback that you want to hear. So. That's good. I can't think of a more, of a demographic that's going to take honesty more difficult because typically they're not I find that entrepreneurs are right a lot of time they work hard to be right and to be the best and to be at the top of their game and so now you're asking that type of personality surround yourself by people that are going to tell you you're wrong but in a constructive way and help yeah and to out. give an example of that so at the assisted living facility I always use Phyllis Phyllis is a real person who lives in one of our southern Illinois facilities and she's very sweet and I feel like she's my grandmother and the thing about people who are living in a assisted living facilities and you know, I'm generalizing here, but older people in general is that they'll tell you what, how they're feeling. And so sit down with her, meet with her, and she'll tell me exactly what's wrong with my facility. This is, the food is not good, especially this, that, and the other. Monday, Tuesday, and Fridays, are, your food is terrible. And, you know, it's too cold, and you need some shades on the windows in the dining room, and you need this, and you need that, or you need to do this differently. It makes you more self-aware. Now, you know, you can't, as a business owner, maybe you can't, you're not going to please everybody, and you're not going to make every resident happy, but that feedback is invaluable, and it makes you more self-aware of a, of a company because you can not only improve that facility, but the feedback that I get from her, you can use to the next facility. Okay, we need this amenity that we don't have at this facility. So when we go to design our next building, you know, we need to incorporate a, a spa into our next facility because this is clearly something that, that they're looking for that we don't have. And so a lot of times I think it's it's one-on-one -on -one conversations because I think people will will tell you more of what they think in one-on-one in -on -one settings versus group settings. Yeah. One analogy I, I use coming from a mechanical engineering background, but is that 
when an engine is working, that's everything working right. But there's many more ways that it cannot work. And that's things that are going wrong. And as an entrepreneur in your business, you always have these fires that just pop up that cause a lot of stress. So that kind of leads me into my next question is, how have you seen entrepreneurs, yourself or your family or that you've inter- interviewed, how do you manage that stress? Or even how do you take care of yourself as a CEO or as, a, as an entrepreneur? I think always, this is again maybe a little cliche, but taking, don't the things that matter to you continuing make time for them so whether that's family whatever that is in your life and so you know I like to I like to play soccer I like to go to the gym I like to do something active every day I like to travel what are the things that you most value in your life you know religion or family or some sort of activity and even when things are most stressful in an entrepreneur's life when you're working 80 hours a week and it seems implausible to take time away to do those things I think it's continuing to make time for those things. Because in the grand scheme of things, if this business makes $100,000 or $10,000 this year, to me, is not that important. If I'm giving up something in my life, you know, whether it's family or whether it's, for me, I, I'd love to play soccer, it's not worth it to me. To me, you know, making more money or growing, it's not worth sacrificing other things that I find my, more valuable in my life. So I always try to continue to make time for those things. Now I have to give up some things, but I say, what are the things that are most valuable that I want to continue doing? And so I will continue doing those even if they may be at the expense of of the growth of the business. What's the best advice you've ever gotten? I'm going to steal one from down here from, hopefully he doesn't mind, Carlos Knott of Bayou Tesh Brewery. And he always tells my class, a business is your utopia to create. And I think that that's very true. When you start a business, you can make it whatever you want. You can hire whoever you want. You can make whatever products you want. It is, and to me, that's the joy of entrepreneurship. You know, a lot of people that come through my class are looking for a job somewhere that's maybe in accounting or audit, and they're doing it because it's a job and it's going to pay them well. And they haven't really thought through Maybe, is this the life that I want to lead? And I think the great thing about entrepreneurship is you can create whatever life to some extent that you want. And so whenever Carlos speaks, it's, you know, he's created a a business that is exactly the life that he wants to lead. And to me, that's important and a point that I try to stress to to my students. Worst advice? (laughs) Worst advice. Don't Don't step on this (laughs) landmine. Did it Worst twice. advice, but things to a uh, thing to avoid. Thing I've learned the most is always. So you know, I've taken on recent uh, years more of an you know investing type role. Is that always there's lots of ideas, and as a as a teacher, I hear lots of business ideas, hundreds of them. Some of them are better than others. Some of them are worse than others. But I will. I will always invest in people over ideas, and uh, that's, I think, the biggest thing that I've learned in making my own mistakes is that I'll hear a great idea, and it will be a great idea, and it has potential, um, but the people aren't right. I think in terms of my own advice or learning from being stupid is to make sure that people are the most important the ideas. Is So you bet on the jockey, <laughs> not the horse. Heard that in VC work. Let's talk a little bit about why you, why teach 
over practice. I think it's a little cliche, but you can have an impact on so many people's lives. I mean, already, I've, I've not been doing this all that long, teaching just a few years, but I've had students who have started businesses, who are working on developing their businesses or getting their products to market, and it's just really rewarding. Um, I mean, it's to see the students go out there into the world, and you know, just in a few years, I've, you know, I've had multiple students come through who have started their own businesses and to go and see them out in the community it's just it's more rewarding than if, if I were to develop I think my own business I'm, I'm just an in of one I'm one person uh, and looking at looking forward because I'm not as young as I once was but still relatively young to see over my career you know I could have an impact on helping start up a hundred different companies and I don't think I could have that sort of impact if I was practicing so that's that's kind of the choice I guess looking at the kind of the long road and it is it's a very rewarding experience I think more so than even having your own at least for me than than having my own business Peter Diamandis talks a lot about not making a financial pledge but making an impact pledge mm-hmm. what are you going to choose what's your greatest impact and that should be something that your heart's in and that you're passionate about and so Whereas a lot of entrepreneurs look at the power of their company and the power of their business, maybe the wealth that they can build and then donate to a worthy cause, it seems like you've gone more towards impacting the people who are going to make a big impact. Where did that come from? Especially tasting entrepreneurship and growing sure up exactly. under exactly. I took a job right out of college for a little while in, in corporate finance, and it just it was not a meaningful job. And and I think in some of these, even in some of these assisted living facilities, you, sometimes you ask yourself, what is the goal? What's enough? It's great to grow your business, but why am I really doing this? Is it to improve my net worth? Is it to, to create value? Do I really think that I'm helping the world? And in some extent, I do. You know, you're, you're, you're creating jobs for people. You're creating a great place for people to live. But it still felt a little bit like part of the reason of doing this was to make money. And I, I still felt like that to some extent in owning my own business. And that, there's nothing wrong with that at all. But I think in teaching, that kind of strips away the, the making money aspect. It's not about making money at all. It's about empowering students and helping students and having basically your thumbprint on you know, all these potential businesses that will start up from you know, my entrepreneurship classes. And um, to me, that's a little bit pure of a motivation um, for doing something than, than focusing on the businesses. Was there someone that had a, an impact, maybe a mentor or a relative that had an impact in your life that maybe I drives that I was not a part why? of it, but we have in our, in our small town years ago, we actually had a class called the, the CEO class for high school students. And I think it's... So it started right after I was in high school. I was in college at the time, and I think it stands for Creating Entrepreneurial Opportunities or something to that effect. And they bring in all these guest speakers and do all these things, and it's becoming more common now. But when it originally started, it was you know it was one of the first of its kind, especially being in a rural area where we're usually one of the last to adopt new things. And this so this was very popular and became well kind of well known throughout our area in central Illinois. Here are all these high school students coming from all these neighboring high schools and um, coming to this class. So there was all these students and having guest entrepreneurs come in. And I saw that happening in my kind of local community. And the guy who, who kind of organized this became somewhat of a local you know, hero, a superstar of, you know, this is a great thing for high school students to get them to learn and get them exposed and create businesses. And it's going to help 
the community. And, and so I think I saw that example when I was in college or right out of college. And I thought, that is, that's really cool. I think I want to do something like that. Because everyone, people who weren't interested in entrepreneurship, you know, other family members outside of the family business were talking about this class. Who is sitting around talking about a high school class? It doesn't happen. And everyone was talking about it. And people were going to their case competition at the end of the semester. And it's my mom, who is a, who is a kindergarten teacher, is talking about this, this cool entrepreneurial class. And I think the origins of that idea may have been planted by that class, even though I was never directly involved in it. So another mentor of mine says, pick something that you would die for and then live for it. And so if we talk about old Blake, you know, in his 70s, looking back on what he's lived for, what do you look back on and see that you've liked to have accomplished? So in, in looking life? forward, so if I, if I look back 30, in 30 years from now, what I look yeah. back? Yeah. <laughs> yeah, so I have a very specific goal for that. Actually, I have an answer for that. I want to teach a class. So I bring guest Fantastic. speakers. In. I think I have about 10 guest speakers come in during the course of my entrepreneurship class during the semester. My goal is to have every single one of those guest speakers be a former student of mine, meaning that they've gone out, they've created a successful business, had an impact on their community, and they've learned enough through their experiences to come back to my class to impart their knowledge to my current students. So that's kind of my goal is to eventually have 10 students, of course hopefully it's more, but 10 students that I would entrust to come to my class who are guest speakers who sat in the same seats as, as they once did. Gabriel, you have a challenge? <laughs> yeah, you're gonna be the first one. <laughs> Fantastic, fantastic. <laughs> Great interview. That's what I got.